This podcast is made possible by Host Analytics and U.S. Bank. Hi, this is Terry Stevens, the CFO of Moby TV, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 305. team it's it's about seeing them as individuals it's as seeing them as you know what are their strengths um where is it that they struggle what are they fearful of but that means you, i need to have done that for myself otherwise i don't think you can get to the place where you are able to do that but i think sometimes when we're in a working environment we don't see the people behind we just see the person who's working and what they're delivering but so much of what they're delivering and how they're delivering it is around who they are and perhaps what they are fearful of. From the Middle Market Executive Digital Network, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. In part two of our interview with Talita Ferreira, we learn why she believes finance leaders are keenly positioned to drive change and why a lack of self-awareness can trip up even the most gifted leader. Our interview begins after these words from our sponsor. It's no secret finance professionals are dealing with some pretty complex problems these days. Now more than ever, they need tools that can help them streamline complex workflows and focus on bigger strategic issues. By bringing your finance organization together on a single cloud platform, Host Analytics automates everyday processes that would otherwise slow you down. By streamlining your planning, modeling, consolidation, reporting, and analytics, Host helps you connect your organization so you can react more quickly to changing conditions and make better business decisions to optimize performance. Let Host Analytics be your partner in leading the evolution of your business. When Talita Ferreira was counted among BMW's top executives, she would become involved in a massive corporate reorganization that called for the relocation of three BMW companies to a single site within the UK. It was her involvement in this reorganization that raised her awareness of the strategic impact of workforce culture and ultimately changed the future path of her career. Um, I think it all kind of again grew quite organically. When I left um, that organization and on top of the CFO job and the strategy, then got the um, culture program to do and saw the, really the links between the culture, the future, the strategy and um, the human resources strategy specifically and how that fits into the wider organizational strategy, how it helps you to deliver that wider strategy. I think it was quite clear for me then that um, this was really where my interest, interest kind of lay, where you um, intersect the strategy of the organization with the human resources strategy and the culture and that little bit in between, how do you get the sweet spot and the engagement from the people to really deliver what you need. And um, 
it actually the whole um, I was planning to be a CEO actually so after my financial services CFO position the next possible step would have been to be a CEO and that's why it was a little bit I was a little bit unhappy and a little bit thrown when I had to take another CFO position and but of course I didn't know at that stage that this phenomenal culture program would come in between and really define everything for me and um, so, you know, again, the culture thing raised its head, the more human resources side raised its head. But always very much I see myself as a bridge between the finance world and this other world because sometimes CFOs can just be controllers or, you know, the, the guys who ask for the business cases and really only want to reflect on the numbers. So I really see myself as the bridge also for other CFOs and for other board directors to get them into this dimension of this cabinet responsibility. And while I was doing that project, authenticity came up. And someone asked me um, why, their words, not mine, why, why were you so successful to get at such a young age, you know, um, your, your um, not uh, German into that group of top 300 leaders. H how did you do that? And I said, just by being authentically me. And a couple of months before that, one of the people who worked for me, we had been really speaking more about a personal development when we were having our one-to-ones, not really just about all the finance numbers. And she said to me, why don't you write a book? And I titled the book Authentically Me and Allowed to Be. And it's almost like those three things, the value of authenticity, my answering that question, it's being authentically me, and my titling a book Authentically Me and Allowed to Be, those three things just kind of clicked together and I knew it was authenticity and culture change and that was really the thing that was now shaping to be more important in my life. And... Um, I had a coach at the time because it was also one of the most challenging times to be a CFO and do a big uh, challenging project on top and lead a new strategy that was really quite, quite tricky for me. So I had a, a coach that was supporting me at the time and I went to her and discussed all this and she said, well, it seems to me like you're really supposed to, you know, you have a purpose here around authenticity. And we explored the purpose on, around authenticity, and very soon after that, I just started doing research into authentic leadership, what was authentic leadership, and then I um, started writing a book around authenticity. And the very interesting thing was every person that I met that I then started to say to, I'm writing this book on authenticity – Within a maximum five minutes of the conversation, even if we changed the tone of the conversation or what we were talking about, they would actually use the word authenticity in the conversation. So it was almost as if I, I had challenged their authenticity by using the word. And so it was a very interesting phenomena for me and also this idea that every single person had a different definition of what authenticity is. And so I, I just, it just kind of unfolded and I had to create my own definition of authenticity. So the book is called The Authenticity Dilemma Resolved um, and I cross out the and the dilemma so that it just what's remaining is authenticity resolved because I think by being truly who we are and connecting more with our humanity and then connecting with other people in a different way is what we will need in this future world where there's so much change and challenge for each of us to be able to deal with, especially in corporate life. We have uh, on this podcast from time to time discussed trust within organizations and how 
CFOs are responsible in a way for guarding uh, that trust. And this, of course, comes back to the numbers and uh, the CFO's responsibility uh, to sign off on, on the numbers. So as a result, they tend to be more guarded. And this is a challenge at times uh, for them. I would, I would start with the team dimension because although the finance director is, as you said, the custodian of the numbers and the integrity is really important, um, I think the trust is not just in the overall numbers, the trust is in the team. And Google has done some research around the Aristotle research which shows that trust is created by emotional safety in a team. And you can't have emotional safety in a team if people don't understand who other people are. So I think unless you have this real level of authenticity where people are who they are and are, are sharing that, I think you will not get to the level of emotional safety in a team and people won't trust each other. I think also what very often happens in organizations is they're very silo-orientated silo where different parts of an organization are really in conflict with each other. And that's not good for the organizations either. And I think what one sometimes finds as well is you find strategies where people lower down in the organization always knew that the strategy would fail, but no one asked them. And I think that's not really – so we need people to start telling us. And very often people below the leadership levels are the people who really are interfacing with the customer, and they are the people who know what the real answers are. But because we sometimes design strategies right at the top of organizations, not really going down to those levels that are touching the other um, parts, we never get their creativity. And often what I found is the people at, at, um, in different layers of the organization sometimes don't believe that the real leaders in the organization want them to be authentic. And so these are all the challenges that we face. And I understand that it's challenging. And, and the book is very much around, uh, um, around creating an aspirational way of understanding yourself more first, so being more conscious about who you are, your values around what your purpose is, and then from that place to connect with other people and to create connected relationships with them where they are more purpose-driven and more collaborative and where we are accepting difference unconditionally. You know, one thing that I think we are never taught ever, especially um, even as children, is to unconditionally respect difference. I have a nine-year-old and she will come home and talk to me about when someone is different, say, you know, are they weird? And weird isn't, not, isn't necessarily bad, but why is there this thing when someone is different or is showing um, that they are, uh, have a different way of thinking? Why do we not unconditionally just respect that is so? And I think this is where some of the ailments in the world also come from. So the book is very aspirational. How do I live um, more connected to myself and then how do I connect differently to others in, in a way that I can have power? And an authentic power that gives me presence, that um, allows effortless flow between the different dimensions of the oh, – so, sorry, let me go in, 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 um, in, in order. So um, that gives me presence, presence and confidence about who I am and, and how I am a leader, that um, helps me to overcome maybe some of the fears I have, the fears of looking bad, the fears of being wrong, all those fears that really, if I overcame them, would make it um, a lot easier to just, in an organization, be able to say what I really think and, and to advance what is, what is really true. Um, 
the, the W is the whole integrated being where we're more connected to our heads, our hearts, the empathy for other people, um, and our intuition and in, in our body. So a more wholeness. Um, the E is the effortless flow. I mean, so many people have totally different personas at work than they do at home. But you spend two-thirds of your life at work and not at home. So the reality is if you can't be who you really are in the working environment, I think it's a pretty sad state of affairs for two-thirds of your life. And then the last one is resonance. I really think once you live in this way where you're more connected to yourself, to others, you can resonate more with why you're here, your purpose, and what it is you want to create. So it's a really aspirational book. I'm also, you know, there are still some pieces that challenge me a lot in the real connection to other people, not judging. We should go on to the judgment topic. How often did I sit in a boardroom and judge other directors and think, you idiot, why are you deciding that? I mean, that's like in a worst case, you know, sometimes we, we do that as humans. We, we have those conversations in our head where we're thinking, really? And what I found is that closes off really the solution orientation. If we sit in judgment of others and think where are they coming from, not trying to understand their perspective, it doesn't make us very good leaders and neither does it make us very good board directors. What advice do you have for finance leaders when it comes to building their team and developing uh, their people? Um, so if I, if I think about my team, it's, it's about seeing them as individuals. It's as seeing them as, you know, what are their strengths? Um, where is it that they struggle? What are they fearful of? But that means you, I need to have done that for myself. Otherwise, I don't think you can get to the place where you are able to do that. But I think sometimes when we're in a working environment, we don't see the people behind. We just see the person who's working and what they're delivering. But so much of what they're delivering and how they're delivering it is around who they are and perhaps what they are fearful of. If I just take the example of someone who um, I had uh, one leader who was very fearful of presentations. And um, if I hadn't known that or tried to explore that, I would always just get this very cold type of reaction when we were headed towards a presentation, probably that the person had to do a presentation. And I never knew what was wrong because the person was so confident and knew her stuff. And it was only when I, you know, took that step and went that little bit into the unknown with her to grow and develop her that I realized that that was really the problem. So then I created small opportunities for her to be able to to present in front of maybe some of her peers that wouldn't be as, as frightening as a, as a board level presentation. And... Um, you know, she would, she would always have with me the perfect answers, but not in a board environment. She wouldn't have the perfect answers. And it was working through, in our one-to-ones, it was working through those difficulties that she had that made her the better, stronger leader and that created the trust between us and that also created the trust with the other peers, her peers in the room. Um, so that's on the, on the more individual dimension. And then I think in a, in a board setting... So I always like to, to talk about my warrior energy as a CFO. I, I have a lot of warrior energy. So I can have a very good fight. Um, you know, I, I learned this very much from the Germans. Um, 
South Africans are very much if we're if we're having a conflict with each other in a in a boardroom environment in an office environment, and um, we don't get along. It's not like we can really be friends. And my German colleagues, they they can have a stand up fight and then they can have go for a beer together in the beer garden. And these intercultural differences really opened my mind a bit to. A, a different way of, of thinking about the other people. You know, you always meet um, uh, people that you are having a conflict with in a business. You meet again and again in your life in a, in a multinational group. And the thing is, if somehow you are not the conciliator in that relationship, uh, trying to, you know, uh, rise above the conflict, I, I think there's, you know, you will run into those people again and it will be quite might be quite difficult for you in your career. So what I always try to do is is really to understand the other person's view. So if I am in a conflict situation, where is the other person and why are they at that place? And I think that lessens this warrior energy where it's just a conflict and you don't really get to a solution. I mean, I, I, I coach um, someone at the moment, and there are two board directors. They are going into a, um, let's say they are forced to go into an efficiency program, and these two board directors are really at odds with each, each other, and neither of them wants to let go of um, their own power base. So neither of them are willing to give up, um, give up maybe anything in that efficiency process. But that's not good for the organization. And somehow someone has to be the mediator between these two, but also has to make them realize that if they take those warrior stances and they don't come to a place where there's a pragmatic solution or a collaboration, that actually as directors they're not fulfilling their responsibility to the organization and they're looking bad because, you know, everyone is seeing that they can't agree. And so I think there's this, this other place for us where we really have to focus on what is the other person's perspective so that we can somewhere meet in the middle? And that's what I would say. Those are really the two things. The finance professional has to focus on how do I create that trust within my team so that my team members, I'm growing and developing them to also be great leaders. And the second dimension is how do I work with my counterparts when we are continually in boardroom environments, in conflict situations, where we don't ruin relationships, but we find together compromises and we find find solutions and use a pragmatism to bring us there. Where can finance leaders begin uh, to get the knowledge they need to better understand uh, some of these dynamics within organizations that you've been you've been detailing here for us? I must be honest, I recommend reading. That's what I did. I, I used to devour books, um, you know, Wayne Dyer, Deepak Chopra, um, laws of success, but not in the traditional, let's say, analytical realm, to really try to open my mind a little bit more to, you know, how do I, you know, this person, what, what makes me tick? When, when the same person presses my button all the time and makes me furiously mad, why is that? You know, how can I, how can I react less? How can I respond less? Because what is it in, in me that they're triggering? And I think that self-discovery is really important for, for any leader, that self-awareness self to really understand who are you, what's your purpose, what are your values, what is really important. Most of the times when I had real moments of conflict in an organization, it was because it was values-based. 
because someone was crossing a value of mine. But because I didn't think about what my values were, it wasn't so clear to see, oh, that's just a values clash. It took me a long time to realize, ah, they're crossing a core value. Now, how do I, how do I explain to them, you've crossed one of my core values, and that's why you're seeing such an instantaneous reaction from me? It's a lot about reading, a lot about um, a lot of on. There's a lot of online content now where one can also really help to grow yourself as a leader. One doesn't have to just wait for a company to develop you in that realm. Thought leader listeners, don't go anywhere. We have more of our interview after these words from our sponsor. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. Talita, we're going to move to our mentoring round, where I'm going to ask you several quick questions here uh, designed to help uh, mentor aspiring finance leaders. What's one thing that's exciting you about finance and business today? Yeah, the one thing that excites me really about finance and business today is really the impact that finance can have in creating um, a business-enabling focus in the organization, you know, being those business enablers that really push the organization forward, help the organization to really become su successful, and also to grow and develop people. What do you wish someone had told you at the the first time you stepped into the CFO office, what's that that piece of information you wish you had, really? Um, I would have liked to a lot earlier have understood this judgment thing better than I do today. Or I'll, I, I understand it now. I didn't understand it then. You know that uh, you create a lot of negative energy from yourself by by judging your 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 colleagues. So for instance, if we just look, you know, I, I had so many situations in my life where people gave me substandard business cases or, or, you know, conflict situations arose. And I think it would have really served me better to understand their position rather than getting, you know, that instantaneous irritation and that instantaneous, as I described it before, that warrior energy on, you know, how, how is it possible that you couldn't get that this was what you had to do, but really try to then understand, you know, what is their perspective? Is it that they didn't really have the skills or they couldn't really put it together? Or was there time pressure? What was it? And how could I rather have anticipated that before to solve it um, in, a, in a better way? Because I think the energy that we spend on the, on the, from that negative place is not, is not energy well spent. And in the end, I think you spend the same time. If you take more time at the beginning to understand the other person's perspective, it saves you the time later. You know, finance professionals generally don't have a lot of time. And I think sometimes that's why we are so, you know, focused on getting the results quickly. But sometimes it is just better to take that time and take that, that leadership perspective more of how, how, where is this person coming from and why is that so? So a, a real different analysis to your stakeholder assessment, I would say. I would have really liked to know that earlier. 
Do you have a personal habit you uh, believe has contributed to your professional success? Yes. Um, the only thing that really helped me through that period where I was doing the culture change program, driving the strategy of the organization, leading the finance area, and then writing a book, getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning. The only thing that really kind of helped me to sleep and to be able to focus properly was uh, journaling. So I started to journal, and, and it's really just capturing from a point of gratitude what you are grateful in the day for. And what it really did for me is it shifted a lot of negative energy. I used to have a lot of problems with sleeping before I did that, you know, everything running around in my head that I needed to do. And that's the one thing that really grounded me was to start journaling, but from this perspective of, uh, of a more gratitude perspective, what I'm grateful for, because it's very positive, And then it closes off all those things that you were doing during the day that needs to be closed off. Uh, it's funny, that, that term. I always have this sort of romanticized uh, notion of, of people opening these leather-bound uh, notebooks with <laughs> feather pens writing in them. When you, when you do journal, are you right at your uh, keyboard? And your, your, what, How exactly? What's the, what's the habit? No, no, no. It is a book. And uh, I have different colored ones. So over in the past, I've had pink and navy blue. And so sometimes you go to courses and people give, give you a journal as a, as a gift, you know, a book that you can write in. And I just, I just keep them and um, keep them in a drawer and, and collect them. And then I, I use those books. So I take a pen, I go upstairs, and the 20 minutes just before I sleep, I sit down. And, and now I can do it probably in about five or six and I just write what I'm really grateful for in the day. And if there was something that was really particularly challenging, I will also, and it took a long time to get me there. You know, if you're in a conflict situation with someone um, and, and to really write down something positive about it seems really ludicrous. But it really shifts the energy around what was the challenge in the day so that you can properly sleep. So I will write something like, I'm so grateful for the challenging conversation with X. I know that I will grow and develop from this. You know, it's very easy to, um, you know, some people will say, well, why should you do the growth out of the challenging conversation? But that means I'm focusing my energy positively, you know, because I'll grow and develop from it. So I'll learn something from it. So, so, and that's, I, I think that definitely, because there are always things that bother you at the end of a day. And that's just the way to get rid of them. So I just write 10, 20 things, write a full page, and then I put the book away. You've already mentioned a, a number of different books, but we always like to ask, is there a, a book top of mind uh, for you right now that you'd like to recommend? What I would suggest is uh, Deborah Rowland's uh, new book on Still Moving. I, I've not finished it, and... Um, I'm still busy with it, but it's very makes very compelling reading because she's an anthropologist. So everything is based in research that she's done, and it's around leading mindful change. And you know, these this juxtapose of the two words, still and moving, is very significant as well. You know, you can only move if you're still in yourself first. And uh, yeah, so that's I, I would recommend her book. So, Lita, we usually end by asking um, finance leaders, what are their priorities as a finance leader? Um, but you're, you're a thought leader now, so what should we ask you? I could relate it because what I'm doing now is I'm trying to start with, you know, although I wrote this book that's more aspirational, I'm trying to start with inspiring more finance leaders to think this way. 
um, because I do think they have a very important role to play in organizations, which we've already discussed. So for me, if you asked me what um, would my priorities be, is I would really like to inspire more finance leaders to become these inspirational leaders that connect, that understand themselves better and connect to others in a different way. All right, so then I would just say to Lita Ferreira, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Jack. It's Jack Sweeney with a quick note that CFO Thought Leader now has a quarterly print magazine. That's right, print. Each issue will profile 25 different CFOs. Let me repeat that, 25 CFOs. Other uh, print publications are lucky if they're able to bring you five CFOs per issue. What we understand is that you want to consume content in multiple ways. But wait a minute, there's something more here. We wanted this print magazine to be a podcast companion. So when you receive it, we want you to quickly thumb through it and maybe identify which episodes you have missed. We want you to dog ear those pages, as well as uh, perhaps the pages that feature CFOs from episodes you already listened to but found maybe a little extra value from. 12 months later, you will have a library of 100 CFO profiles highlighted with your insights or comments alongside the CFO thought leaders. Now, how much are we charging for this one-of-a-kind 100 CFO profile library? Annual subscriptions are $119. We think that's reasonable. We thought about it a little bit, but that's, that's what we came up with. Uh, visit us and subscribe to CFO Thought Leader magazine at cfothoughtleader.com, where the future of finance is listening.